With that said, let's turn in our Bibles uh, to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, looking at verses 7 to 10. I titled the message this morning, The Cure for Worldliness. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, uh, I talked about and answered really the question, what is worldliness? What does it mean when we refer to uh, a Christian as being a worldly Christian? What does that look like? And I think that maybe for some of us, we think of worldliness as just exterior things that we might see in people, that we might observe in another person. And it's quite often just the things that we see on the exterior that we think of as worldly. But really the issue is a lot deeper than that. As we could see what James brings out in this fourth chapter is he he talks about not just the exterior things that we would call worldly, but he's talking about a deeper problem. He's talking about a problem that we have in the heart. It's really the root of worldliness. It's the issue of the heart. You see, God made you, God designed you and I really with a threefold nature. We're body, soul, and spirit. And God wants all of you. He doesn't want just a part of you. He wants every bit of our being. And I think it's important for us to understand when we're talking about the worldliness that we might have in our heart, that's an area that quite often people don't see. But God sees it, and that's what's important. But anyway, this threefold nature of man, this body, soul, and spirit, it's the body that we have, this flesh, this tangible, we might call it, that's visible. It's what we all see when we see one another. The visible, tangible part of man. It consists of our, our sight, our smell, our hearing, our testing, uh, tasting. It's, it's everything that makes up our flesh. But then we have a soul. And the soul is invisible. It's the invisible part that others don't see. And it's that invisible part of our, our makeup that is our conscience, our imagination, our, our reasoning, and our affections. And the soul, we actually get our word psyche from it. But then there's a third part that makes you up as a human being, and that's the spiritual side of you. And that's, again, it's something that is the invisible, something that is not seen. It's that part of your being that we might call the spiritual part of your being, which consists of faith and it consists of hope and prayer and worship and reverence. That communion that we can have with God is done in the spiritual part of your being. We know that Paul, when he closed out his letter to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, this is how he closed it out. He says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. See, that's the part. God wants all of you. That you would be sanctified completely, body, soul, and spirit. And He says, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 24, he says, He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. God is doing a work in each one that is a child of God. God is working in you, body, soul, and spirit. He's wanting to sanctify you completely for His purpose. I like that. I like that God is concerned with the inside, not just with the outside. I like that God wants to deal with my heart. 
I, I like the fact that we have the truth of God's word that wants to speak in our heart. And do we welcome that? Do we say, God, would you speak into my heart your truth? In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The living word. The powerful word of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's piercing. Listen to what it says. It's piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. Those invisible parts within you. It's piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit within you and of the joints and the marrow. And it's also a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's Word. Getting into the nitty-gritty of our makeup. Getting into those areas and those recesses that nobody else sees. You see, it's the Word of God that is able to do that. It's that two-edged sword. It's that, that knife that can get in there and just get into those areas of our heart when we allow Him. God, would You work in me? Would You speak to me? God, if there be any wicked way in me, God, would You reveal it to me? And would You work? That's what God desires to do. We all have a will. It's by God's design that you have a will. And one of two things that we do with the will that we have been given. We either yield to God or we yield to the flesh. Have you ever noticed that? We either yield our will to God or we yield to the flesh. It's one or the other. And God's Word is piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. God's Word is truth. And His Word is able to to get into those hidden, unseen parts of your life. The only thing is, we need to allow Him to work. Like we read in Thessalonians, He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. God will do that work in our heart. He knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, worldliness, like I've already said, is rooted in the heart. It's rooted in in a heart that only God can see. And out of the heart, we have anger and bitterness and jealousy and partiality and bitter envy and self-seeking and warring and fighting and speaking evil and judging and boasting and murmuring and complaining. This is the list that James gives. And there's actually more. We read in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a man. The issue of worldliness has to do with the heart. I want to start and look back because we've had a week in between meeting and talking on this subject of worldliness. Let's look back to chapter 3, verse 13. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? Asking a question. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. I want you to note that word meekness. 
But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, I want you to notice that. If you have these things in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and willing, and I want you to know this, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I read that to you leading up to where we're going to go today. In chapter 4, verse 1, we might say, as we talked about two weeks ago, that James is defining worldliness. This was our text two weeks ago, verses 1 to 6. We might say that verses 1 to 6 is speaking about and defining worldliness. And in our text today, we're going to talk about the cure, the remedy for worldliness. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? And do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? As I shared, there's really two questions here, but it's really one question. He says, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. There's the issue of our flesh. You see, our flesh desires to please itself. And worldliness has to do with the things that we desire, the things that we want, the things that we covet, even in life. And it's never enough. Your flesh will continue to strive for more and more and more. It's never satisfied. And it'll go to great lengths to get what it wants. Thus you have murder and covetousness and fighting and warring and all of those things that really are issues of our heart that come out. James calls it out. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses. That's, he's talking about that spiritual adultery. Allowing things to take a place in a greater prominent place in your heart than the things of God. James says, you adulterers, he's speaking to Christians, he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, you can't serve two things. You'll either love the one or hate the other and hate the one and love. You can't have both. Look at verse 5. Or do you think the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? God's Spirit in you. Yearning jealously for all of you. Wanting all of you. Wanting all of your heart. Then we've finished in verse 6, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. We need to come into this place and we need to leave our pride at the, the front door. When we come into this place, if we come in with hearts full of pride, it's going to stand in the way of what God wants to do. 
We need to leave it at the door. Pride, as I'm sure, is our number one. It'll always get the best of you. It'll, it'll, it'll keep you from wholeheartedly walking and following after the Lord. God resists the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. Which one do we want? One is grace. Then I got to get rid of the pride. I got to set the pride aside. James here was quoting from Proverbs 3.34. And Peter does the same. In his letter in 1 Peter 5.5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Peter used the same proverb. I think it's an important issue for us to realize about ourselves that pride is our greatest enemy. God, would you humble me? Would you keep me in a place of humility before you? that nothing would stand in the way of me allowing you to work and to work in those areas of my heart that you desire to work in. We read on this morning in verses 7 to 10, and we're going to, in essence, answer another question. It's not asked in the text, but we'll ask the question, what is the cure for worldliness. What's the remedy for it? And I want you to make a mental note that James starts verse 7 with the word, therefore. Therefore is because of what he just said prior to this. He says, therefore, or what should our response be to what we just read from verses 1 to 6? Now, what should our response be to that? Let's read verse 7. Therefore, and I'm going to insert brothers and sisters here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. I believe that James is giving us here the cure, the remedy for worldliness. And then... If you look at verse 10, we could say, that's it. This is it. Therefore, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Did you notice there's a therefore? Therefore, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. You see, it starts with our submitting to God, and then it ends with, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Submitting to God. James here gives us actually six things that are the cure for worldliness. The remedy for it. And the first and the primary one is that we would submit to God. When you're submitting, what are you doing? You're really submitting your will to God. Submit to God. Be subject to God. It's actually a command. Actually, all six of these are a command. They're not an option for us as Christians. And each one of these commands is an eros tense which suggests that each one of them are to be done with urgency and with decisive action. 
In other words, this is something that James is saying, we need to act upon it. We're commanded to act upon these things. The word submit. How many of you like it? To submit. It's actually found six times in the New Testament. It's submit yourselves before God in the old King James. Submit yourselves before God. It's actually a concept within our Christian life to submit. And we have to learn to submit in a lot of different ways. We're called to submit to the secular government, aren't we? 1 Peter 2.13 Wives are called to submit to their husbands in 1 Peter 3.1 We already... Uh, we already read in 1 Peter 5.5 5, that younger people are to submit to the elderly. And then in Titus 2.9, we're called to, servants are called to submit to their masters. And then in Ephesians 5.21, believers are to submit to one another. The life of a Christian is one of submission. And we're here called by James to submit ourselves to God. But let me ask you, it's not an exercise of our will. It is an exercise of our will to do that. But let me ask you, are you submitting willfully before God? You see, God never makes us do anything we willfully submit to Him. Our response in light of what He has done for us should be that I would submit my life into His hands. My will into His hands. It's the Greek word submit. It means to arrange under. It means to subordinate. It's also translated in some translations the words to subject, to put under subjection, to obey, to submit to one's control, to yield to one's admonition or advice. That's what we're called to do before the Lord. The word is also a Greek military term which has the meaning of to rank under or to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In a non-military use, it was used as a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. That's the word submit. Submit to God. And then going back to this issue of the heart and this issue of my will, I need to submit my will to Him. Knowing that my will wants to do what it wants to do quite often, but I want to submit my will to Him. You see, the pathway to victory over sin is going to be one of humility and brokenness. It's the same for all of us. We all have to go the same path. That victory over sin comes by way of humility. It comes by brokenness of your your spirit, your will. It's turning from my will to His will. It's submitting my will to His will. And that's not always an easy thing to do. We contend with this flesh that wants to please itself. We contend with hearts that quite often have things that are full of pride and keep us from submitting to God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, He taught the disciples in that sermon that day 
on prayer. He says in verse 9, After this manner, therefore pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see how Jesus even began that model prayer? Uh, to acknowledge who He is. Our Father in heaven, holy is Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done. You see, that should be part of our prayer. That our will would line up with His will in heaven. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I, I beg you, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, it all has to do with who you submit yourself to. Submit your whole body as a living sacrifice unto God. Body, soul, and spirit. And I can tell you this, you will learn quickly and come to know quickly what the will of God is. It won't be foggy. It will become very clear as you submit your whole life as a living sacrifice unto God. It gets really cloudy when we don't. It gets really hard to determine what's God want but it becomes very clear when you're submitting yourself and your will before God. And then it raises the question, how do you know? How do you and I know if you are submitting to God? I'll say this, are you ready to listen? Are you ready to listen when God speaks? Are you ready to obey His instructions when He gives them? Is He the Lord of your life? Is He your master, your owner and ruler in your life? Do you, how, can, how do you answer that? We're sitting here this morning hearing the Word of God taught. And it becomes an issue of, am I listening? Do I want to obey His instructions when He speaks to me? If His truth pierces my heart, am I okay with that? You see, that's how we will really know if we're really submitting to God. God, I want everything that You have for me. I don't want to just hunt and peck the things that I can live with that you desire of me, but I want all. When we humbly submit to God, He will lead us into obeying the next command. Look what it says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, resisting the devil, remember the devil is the slanderer. He's the deceiver. He's the accuser of the brethren. And when we resist the devil, we're really resisting his temptations, his lies that he brings your way. When you call upon the Lord, when we look to the Lord and we call upon Him, we're really resisting the devil in doing that. God, I want to submit myself before You. I want to come and, and sit at Your feet. I want to be close to You daily. That I might resist the devil. We resist in faith, don't we? We resist the devil in faith and then the promise follows. If you resist the devil, 
It says, the promise is he'll flee from you. But our part is to resist. The promise is that he will flee from you if you do that, if you resist. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 13 of James. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Each one is tempted. This is you and I. Each one is tempted when you're drawn away by your own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We can't blame it on God. God doesn't tempt us with sin. It's when we're drawn away with our own desires, our own flesh, our own self, that it brings forth sin. Our enemy wants us to conform to this world. He wants us to conform to the systems that are in this world. Systems that are not God's systems. He wants to entice us with the things of this world. He wants us to change our allegiance from God to Him. But where is your allegiance? Where's your full allegiance? Is it towards God? Or is it towards your enemy that's wanting to draw you away into the things of this world? And here's a warning. Your enemy is never going to stop trying. He'll never stop. But if you resist him, he's going to flee. There's the promise. We need to resist in faith and then we need to stand upon the promise. He'll flee from you. After Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for those 40 days and 40 nights, the devil came and sought to tempt him over that time. And then we read in Luke 4.13, now when the Lord, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. He couldn't get anywhere with the Lord. The Lord used truth to resist Satan's lies and attacks. And Satan left him. He left him alone. And do we do the same? Do you stand and use the Word of God in your resisting of temptation? Quote it to yourself. Say it out loud. Find those verses that are victory shouts for you and stand upon them and use it like the sword of the Spirit. In Matthew's Gospel of that same occasion, We read in 4.11, Then the devil left Jesus, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. God has given each of us the way of escape. From our sin, from all those temptations, all those things, He's given you the way of escape. He will give you the way of escape. In 1 Peter 5.8, we read, Be sober, Christians. Be vigilant, Christians. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Do you get up every day thinking, my enemy is out there prowling. He's ready to get me. Every single day and every moment of the day. He's wanting to seek out whom he may devour. And then P. 
Peter says this in verse 9, resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He tells, Peter says the same thing, resist, resist him. You see, we resist when we stand strong in the Lord. You see, the mode for a Christian is to stand. We're called to stand as Christians before our enemy. God never wants us to to run away. He doesn't want us to turn our back to the enemy. He doesn't want us to retreat from the enemy. He wants us to stand face to face with our enemy. But how do we do it? We're to stand strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Ephesians 6.10 We're to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the reality, Christians. There is a real spiritual battle that is raging around us every single day, and quite often we don't even see it. We don't even realize that it's there. But it's raging around us every single day. And Paul went on to say in verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, the armor of God. We need to put it on and we need to keep it on that we might be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Not to turn our back, not to run, not to to stand. But we do it in the power of God, in the strength of the Lord, not on our own. The third command that James gives in verse 3, he says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Again, a a command with a promise. If you will draw near to God, God will draw near to you. It's a promise. I like how the command to resist the devil and he will flee from you is set between the command to submit to God and this command draw near to God. It's right in the middle of those two things. Submit to God and draw near to God. And remember that our enemies are only going to be defeated when we submit to God and we draw near to Him. Submit to God Draw near to Him and you're going to be in a place of defeating your enemy. Standing as a a child of God, standing against your enemy, against your foes. That's the place that we ought to be. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Like the priest who would approach God with the sacrifices for the people. We also need to draw near. But we have a warning. Isaiah 29.13 It warns us as Christians, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, and they honor Me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from Me. That's the warning. We can have all the right moves. We can do all the right things that Christians do. By all outward appearances, we're doing all the right thing. 
but our heart is far from Him. Jesus, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 15, He's quoting from that verse that I just read out of Isaiah. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus said that to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. As New Testament Christians, we worship God with our lives. And by doing so, when we worship God, we, we're drawing near to Him. When you give your life as a living sacrifice unto God, you're drawing near to Him. As we pray, as we pray to our Father who art in heaven, we're drawing near to Him. As we open the Word of God with our hearts and our ears ready to listen, we're drawing near to God. As we bring our sacrifices of praise and worship before Him, we're drawing near to God. You see, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Through our High Priest, Jesus Christ, we have now the ability as the New Testament saints, we have the ability to draw near. In Hebrews 7.19, we read, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus Christ, our High Priest, He made the way that we can actually draw near to God. In Hebrews 10.19, we read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, we have access. Isn't that incredible? A thought to say that you have access to the living God. You can draw near to Him. There is no longer that veil between. Like the priest had to walk up to that veil. That veil was torn. It happened at the cross through Jesus Christ. And it gave us access to be able to draw near to Him. Jesus made it possible. James went on to give another essential command for us to follow. And I want you to notice that it, it follows draw near to God. It says... Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's given an essential command to us as Christians. That if, I, if I'm going to draw near to God, if I'm going to come into His presence and come before Him, I need to cleanse my hands. I need to purify my heart, have my heart purified. The question we might ask is, how do you approach God who, like Isaiah saw, is holy, holy, holy? You see, there's somebody that drew near. God gave him this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How do we approach God? How do we come before Him? How do we acknowledge Him in our minds when we enter into prayer? Who we're talking with? 
Jesus and teaching His disciples to pray again in Matthew 6-9. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. It's not just a fancy prayer and a way to memorize a prayer. Holy is Your name. That's who I'm talking to. That's who I'm bringing my requests before. A holy God. Holy is Your name. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's how we approach God. It's how we see ourselves and how God sees us. Quite often, they're two different things. Oh, I'm all right. Oh, I'm doing good. And God says, no, you're not. You're not right in your heart. You see, my perspective and God's perspective are quite often two different things. God sees that I need a cleansing. I say I'm all right. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, James says. The priest... They had a prescribed way in which they could approach God. They had to go before God and they had to wash their hands. They had to go through this washing, this cleansing of the hands. They even had to wash their feet. The things that they would do with their hands and the places they would go with their feet. And they had to go before God. They had to wash. You shall wash with water lest you die, it says in Exodus. They shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die, it says in Exodus. That sounds pretty bold. I mean, lest you die. And we quite often, we come before the Lord with unclean hearts. Unwilling to yield. Unwilling to submit to Him. King David wrote in Psalm 24, verse 3. He said, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Asking a question. Or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. You see, that's how we should approach So we should come before the Lord. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The hands, they speak of our outward deeds. The heart, purify your heart. It speaks of your inner life. That part that only God quite often can see. We need to cleanse our hands. We need to purify our hearts. And it's important to know that you can't cleanse your hands without first purifying your heart. You can't have one or the other. You can't cleanse your hand and have a a heart full of sin. Quite often we appear to have cleansed our hands, washed our hands, but we haven't really built our heart. And that's a heart of hypocrisy. Because on the outward it looks clean, on the inside of the cup it's dirty. James says, You double minded. You see, being double-minded is having a double allegiance in your heart. It's having divided loyalties. Trying to please God, but also desiring the world. It's not giving God our whole heart. It's just giving Him a part of it. You see, Jesus wants it all. He 
He wants our whole heart. He spoke in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 8. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or another way we might put it is, Blessed are the undivided in heart. Ones that have not just given part of their heart, but their whole heart to the Lord. He's a jealous God. He wants it all. The cure. The remedy for worldliness is an undivided affection. An undivided affection for God. And also an undefiled conduct in our lives. It's both. Both are necessary. Undivided affection towards Him and undefiled conduct in the way that we live. James went on from there to say in verse 9, he says, lament and mourn and weep, exclamation mark. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Jesus also in the Beatitudes said in in chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I believe that mourning is for sin. Luke's account reads this way in 6.21, Blessed are you who weep now, for for you shall laugh. Let your laughter, James goes on to say, be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, sin for a season often brings a superficial kind of a laughter. There's joy, a superficial kind of a joy, we might say, that even comes through sin. There's pleasure in sin for a season, the Bible says. We quite often, we live our lives as Christians and we have this superficial laughter, we might call it. A superficial joy that we have inside. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a place where we draw near to God, we submit to Him, and God really shines on our hearts really where we're at. And all of a sudden, that laughter and that joy turns to mourning and gloom. Because we realize we're not right in our heart. If you keep yourself at a distance from God, if you keep yourself in a place maybe where you're running from God, because you're loving your sin more than you're loving God, you see, those are the times where this laughter, this superficial laughter and joy and thing, you know, James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning. And your joy, let it be turned to gloom. You see, true joy is His joy. True joy is something that is given to you. True joy is that joy we experience from the fruit of the Spirit that lives and dwells inside of you. The fruit of the Spirit is first love, and then what's next? What comes out of that joy? comes forth. And then peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. True joy. James finishes in verse 10. He says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Or humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. In pride. 
we often give in to the sin of worldliness. In humility, we come into the presence of the Lord. Who gives in to worldliness? Humility is what we need to come into the presence of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. The cure for worldliness, we might say, is humility. Humbling yourselves as you submit to God. It's how He started out. Submit to God first. And then humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He'll lift you up. In humility, we draw near to God and He will draw near to us. In humility, we ask God to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. In humility, we lament and mourn and weep for our sins. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. There's no shortcuts. There's no way that we get into that place and that right place with the Lord except by way of humility. Our pride will always stand in the way of that. If we know that, if we acknowledge that, then we can say, God, would you help me with my pride, my self-sufficiency, my unwillingness to yield to you, Remember what James 4, 6 said. But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You want more grace? Then humbly come before the Lord. You want to experience His grace in a greater way, a deeper way? Then humbly come before the Lord. I want to give us an opportunity and we can have the worship team come up I want to give us all an opportunity to stand before the Lord to stand on our feet right where you're at to be able to lift your heart before the Lord and say God I want to submit to you this morning I want to draw near to you this morning I need to have a cleansing of my hands and a purifying of my heart. I want to confess my double-mindedness. You see, if you need to lament and mourn for your sin and your compromise, then you need to stand. We just heard God's Word. I think it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty serious. My desire for myself, my own heart, is the soul of yours. Peter wrote similar words in 1 Peter 5 6. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Are you willing? Are you willing to let God show, shine the spotlight of his Holy Spirit on your heart as you stand before him? Jesus said in Matthew 18.4, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God will lift you up. It's a promise. God will lift you up. He'll lift you up from that low place to a higher place if you humble your heart before Him.
And so let's worship. And if God is calling you to stand to your feet, then stand to your feet. It's between you and God. It's not between you and me. It's not between you and other people in the church here. It's between you and God where your heart is this morning in light of what you heard from God's Word this morning. And let God have His way. And I believe that if you do, you're going to have a victory in your heart even this morning. And so... Let's worship and let's lift our hearts humbly before the Lord this morning.